Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I am the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Pastor Rod Heppel begins our new summer sermon series on the Ten Commandments called Law for Life. Enjoy! For our summer sermon series, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you know all ten of them? You know, I found out this last week, I saw a survey where it says only 14% of people can actually name all 10 of the Ten Commandments, which I'm, if I had to be honest, if I had to put them in order, I, I might stumble around a little bit. However, that wasn't the case that long ago. You know, growing up, we used to recite the Ten Commandments quite a bit. In fact, I went to public school and elementary school. It wasn't that uncommon for the teacher to have the whole class recite the Ten Commandments. Um, they were often posted on the wall somewhere in the classroom as a visual reminder of what was good for society and what was good for us as classmates. A couple of months ago, I was driving along in my truck and I was listening to the radio and the news was on and I was actually thinking about the Ten Commandments, you know, you shouldn't kill, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't lie, you shouldn't commit adultery and all these different things were running through my head and I'm listening to the news and I just realized there's so many injustices that humanity does against humanity and that the world would be a much better place if we just obeyed these Ten Commandments. If people were to love God rather than to use his name as a swear word, and if they were to treat their neighbor with the fairness and kindness that these Ten Commandments are, are really striving for, the world would be a whole lot better place. Mr. Putin! However, while this is true, when I sat down with Pastor Tim and Richard and Joel Correco to kind of shape this series because they're all going to be involved in teaching this summer, we talked about the fact that the end result of the Ten Commandments really isn't um, the thing that is the motivation for us obeying the Ten Commandments. In fact, we noted that if you didn't have the first ones in place, the next ones wouldn't actually happen because our human heart is so bent towards sin that we wouldn't keep them. Uh, Even if a society knows that they would benefit from keeping these commands, the motivation is not only wrong, but the primary reason for doing it is wrong. If we do it without knowing who God is and having him in his first place in our lives, the rest of them really don't really matter. Now, I know that this is going to sound like the old Sunday school answer, but the reason why we are to keep the commandments is based upon who God is, right? So yes, Jesus is the right answer. God's character and what he's done for us becomes the reason why we would want to keep these commands and that there is an ordering to them that God First, and then others, is kind of the order in which we see. Uh, Someone has rightfully pointed out that the first four commands are in our relationship to God, and the next six commands are in our relationship to each other. So if we look at the Ten Commandments, it looks like this. Have no other gods before me. Don't make for yourself an idol. Don't misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Those are all in relationship to God. And then the next six, honor your father and mother, do not murder, do, commit, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie or give false testimony, do not covet, are all in relationship to each other. So what we see here is God first and then our neighbor. Now that might kind of sound familiar because of the words of Jesus when he was asked in the New Testament, when he was asked, which of the commands are the greatest or which is the greatest, Jesus answered this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So you see that ordering there, love God, love your neighbor. 
Now, we talk about this a lot as Christians because we get this, right? Like we understand what Christ was driving at. So maybe this framework of understanding the four relating to God and the six relating to your neighbor is helpful for you as we work our way through these Ten Commandments. I want you just to linger there for a moment. Look over that list. Ponder it. And just ask yourself this question. Would this world be a better place if we were to live out these commands? And would your life be better if you were to live them out? Now, I think that we do believe that these commands are true and that we do try to live them out. I think, by and large, that's what people are wanting in their life. So maybe this sermon series this summer is simply a refresher for us on the value of the Ten Commandments. So before we jump right in and start to look at these Ten Commandments, I want to talk about the Old Testament and the law, because whenever we do talk about the Old Testament law, we have a bunch of questions that come up, right? Um, and some people who might be listening today don't know very much about the Old Testament and the law, and others might know a lot, and you totally get it, and you're very familiar with it. You know that the Old Testament is often called the Old Covenant, right? And that Christ's coming in the New Testament, there's a new covenant. And so you're familiar with these things, but not everyone is. So let's take a few moments to talk about what our conversation around the Ten Commandments is going to be this summer. I say conversation because there is an ongoing conversation, theologically speaking, about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like, how much of the Old Testament is, are we to be living out in the New Testament era? There's a term that they use, and it's continuity and discontinuity. How much of the Old Testament is continuous into New Testament times and how much is discontinuous, if there is such a word, the disconnect between the two? Um, are we to live today by law and grace or just by grace alone? When Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which has poured out for many the forgiveness of sins, does this mean that we're no longer bound by the law? And if we are in the new covenant and we live by God's grace, which is brought to us by the blood of Jesus Christ, then why are we even talking about obeying the Ten Commandments? These are all good questions. And actually, they're just the tip of the iceberg of the kinds of questions that come out of talking about the Old Testament, how it applies to our lives today. So here's a few things I want you to know. First of all, I want you to hear this, that as we preach through the Ten Commandments, it is tempered by a spirit of humility. We know like Joel and Tim and Richard and myself and a friend of mine, Phil, who's going to be preaching as well. We know that we live under the grace of God and we know that Jesus has fulfilled the demands of the law and that we are in Christ. However, that should lead us to a higher level of commitment and desire to obey God's word, to obey God's command, to live rightly before him. It shouldn't lead us to a place of complacency, to have a lesser degree of concern for these things that reflect the character of God, no, we should have a truer sense of wanting to live it out. That's what Jesus was trying to express in his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. All these people, and religious people as well, that were before him. He was trying to say, it's not just not murdering. It's not just not committing adultery. Okay, It's about understanding how it goes on the inside. And anger was equated to murder. And lust was equated to adultery. Um, you know, it was looking on the inside to realize, where do my temper, where does my temper and where do my thoughts take me? And what is it before God that he sees that no one else sees that God knows it's still a violation of his heart? So, as followers of Christ, we aim at God's goodness. 
We aim at his holy standard all the while knowing that we fall short of it. But it's with a different understanding. We don't aim at it because we're trying to earn his salvation. We aim at it because we know it reflects his character and we live under his grace. Secondly, I want us to remember once again that a common challenge we face in our Christian faith is that we live in the tensions, right? We live in the tensions of understanding how the sovereignty of God and the free will of humanity work together. We live in the tension of understanding how the Trinity can operate as one yet three distinct. And there is a tension here, law and grace. Where do they intersect? What's the tension as we try to look at the Ten Commandments and apply it to our lives? So on the one side, there's this pitfall called legalism. We can become very legalistic about uh, the Ten Commandments and our holiness. We can just treat it like a checklist and we think we're pretty good. But we fall into this place of self-righteousness and we think we're good and we think others are bad because we do a better job at keeping them. That was what the Pharisees did. They thought of themselves better than others. And Jesus comes along and says, no, no, your hearts are wrong. And in fact, they were blinded to the deeper sins of their heart while thinking that they were so good compared to other people. So we don't want to be like that. That's one side of the pitfall. We can become legalistic. The other side, though, of the pitfall is to, to not take seriously what, what God calls sin. Um, so we just kind of go, well, you know, the holiness of God, yeah, well, whatever, you know, I live by grace. No, we don't want to be like that either. That's treating God with contempt. He is holy, and he calls us to holiness, and these are the standards that he's given us to live by. So you see, we do live in this tension uh, between obeying God and also realizing that we can never keep these commandments perfectly and that we do need God's grace in order to live them out. So that's why I say that we preach these truths from a heart of humility, as we should teach always God's word from a heart of humility. Let's look at our title, because it's a bit intriguing. Law for life. You know, this is not what we normally think of when we think of the law. So what do we have in mind here? The title by intent, is provocative. It begs the question, how does the law give life? Now, we usually equate the law, right, with judgment and death rather than with life. So how? Um, well, first of all, the law, the law is good. Neither Jesus nor Paul or anyone in the New Testament said that it's bad because it's reflective of the character of God. It's based on who God is. And, and Jesus indicates that. So if a person could keep the law perfectly, then it would truly be life-giving. The problem is we can't. Paul called it a burden that neither he nor his ancestors could bear. And he says in Galatians that the law cannot actually impart life. It has no power to produce righteousness in us. The law is not bad. It's just impossible for us to keep. Paul's argument in Galatians 3 is actually that the law is good because it serves a greater purpose. The law is good in the sense that it serves the purpose of showing us our need. That we cannot keep it perfectly, therefore we still need a savior. And so it points us to Jesus Christ, who is our savior. So the law leads to life. He puts it like this in Galatians 3.24. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Okay, so the law kind of was like, Watching over us, the law was showing us what was right and true, but it was also showing us how far off the mark we are. And it was put in place until this time that Christ came and we're justified by our faith in Christ. So the law leads us to Christ, which gives us eternal life. You can kind of see there's a bit of a 
double meaning that's going on here. In the one sense, the law leads us to Christ to give us eternal life. And in the other sense, there are certain benefits that come from the law that truly are life-giving. If we're to be honest, right? Think about if as a people we were to put God first in our lives, we were to honor our parents, we were to not steal, kill, destroy, lie, cheat, covet, all that kind of stuff. And we were to take a, a day a week and rest. If we were to live life like that, I think that would be life-giving. Therefore, the law also gives life. That's our title, Law for Life. So let's look a bit at the historical context for the giving of the Ten Commandments because if we can understand originally um, how they were given, who they were given to, and in the context of how those people were living, the nation of Israel, then we can take them and apply them to our day as well. So here's a few things historically that um, with Tim and Richard and Joel that we were kind of considering. Number one, remember that Abraham was declared righteous by his faith in God and the law had not yet been given. And we think that's important, and Paul does too, evidently, because he brings it out in Romans and Galatians. It's important because we don't earn salvation. The law never was intended to earn salvation. Salvation has always been by our faith in God, and it is by grace. So that's the first point. Secondly, to understand the context of the giving of the law of Moses, it wasn't until Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt and they came to Mount Sinai that God gave them the law. So up until that point, the nation of Israel knew very little about what it meant for this God to be holy or righteous. They didn't understand what that meant. They didn't understand that there was only one true and living God. They may have heard about that from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they didn't know it personally for themselves, what it meant for him to be the one true and living God. This was all uh, a learning curve for them as they entered into this relationship with God, as they encountered God through Moses... They were learning what it means. Um, That's why we see them so often resorting back to things like making golden calves to worship. Um, They just, they were like infants, okay? They were in an infancy of coming to understand as they entered into a covenant relationship with God, what it would mean to be the representative of God to all the nations, that they were the people of God representing the character of God, who God is, to other nations. They were just beginning this. Now this is a fascinating reading. If you want to read about it, Exodus 19 and 20 is the whole uh, Mount Sinai scene. Read all of Exodus if you haven't because the whole thing is just really interesting and it will help you understand what we're talking about here in our series. Thirdly, at the center of God's com- covenant with them was this idea that they were to worship him alone. This would be the thing that set them apart from all other nations who worshiped all sorts of gods. If they did keep this, God would bless them. If they failed at this, there would be curses and consequences that come. Lastly, when God gave the Ten Commandments to this nation, it truly was life-giving. They had just come out of Egypt. They had come out of slavery. They had witnessed all around them nations that took advantage of each other. It's really God, through this law, coming to them and saying, listen to me, obey me, walk in my way, and you will live very differently from other nations. If you take these Ten Commandments and you you employ them in your lives, in your daily living, you will not be like other nations who harm each other and rape each other and pillage and destroy and do terrible things. Follow me as your God, walk in my way, and you will have life. The two tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai truly were life-giving 
tablets, law for life. So this is the context in which God has given the Ten Commandments to the nation of Israel. They were not a holy nation set apart to God. Not yet. They were just entering into that. These commandments would be the basis for becoming that kind of a nation. It was the beginning of the process of them setting themselves apart from these other nations by obeying these Ten Commandments. That's how they would be a light to the world if they were to obey God's commands. And of course, that is a very large if. Today, we're going to be looking at the first two commandments. As they kind of go together, uh, they are this central act of obedience that would set them apart to all the other nations. Which are those two? Well, we find them here in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 5. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. Number two. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay, he's, he's a God who has put his affection upon them to save them. Therefore, you are to reciprocate. I am a jealous God. So the two greatest events in Israel's history actually happen back to back right here. The first is that God brings them out of Egypt out of slavery by a, a miraculous display of his power demonstrating to the nation of Israel and to Egypt that he is the one true and living God above and beyond all other God concepts that they have. That's the first act, you might say, of an event in Israel's history that sets them apart for God. The second one was this giving of the law which happened right kind of after the Exodus and they're at Mount Sinai and God gives Moses the law. This is going to be the thing that now shapes them and defines them. And so it says, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's emphasizing that event for a reason. What he's saying is, I have proven to you, Israel, that I am powerful. Because I brought you out of Egypt. And I'm proving to you, Israel, that I'm faithful. Because I'm keeping my promise to Abraham when I said that I would bring you out of slavery. So you can see here that in essence, he is saying to Israel, I'm your savior. I'm the God who has saved you. Therefore, as your savior, I'm your Lord. And therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself an image that you bow down to worship it. You see, this is a game changer. The, the game of life, the way in which Israel knew it, was changing right here with this truth. Up until now, mostly their concept of worship would have been shaped by what they saw around them in these other nations. Even though they knew about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and something carried on down to them, what they witnessed was God's... Um, fashioned in a form of some type that would represent a particular God. That's what they knew of worship. So as an example of how Israel had this as a predominant understanding, Exodus 32 tells this really unique and bizarre story. It's kind of a cool one as well. Um, Moses has gone up on Mount Sinai because he's getting the tablets from God, and he's kind of left his brother Aaron down below in charge of the people. But Moses is taking a long time. Evidently too long for the nation of Israel who come to Aaron and they say to him, 
do something. And so what Aaron does is he calls all the people together and says, give me your gold. And he melts it down and he shapes it and fashions it into a calf. And this is supposedly representing a god of Egypt. And he says, here is your god that brought you out out of Egypt. (laughs) It's such a bizarre story. After just witnessing who Moses has been trying to help them understand who the god of Israel really is, um, they default to this kind of thinking. So it's hard for us to comprehend. But what it illustrates is that the mindset of worship for the Israelites was more um, toward the nations around them than it was toward God and what would become the normative understanding of worship for Israel at a certain point. The God who had revealed himself to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob was now revealing himself again, miraculously through the exodus out of Egypt. And he, in essence, is saying to them this, I am the Lord your God, no one else is. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship me alone. That's what he's saying. So that was Israel's context, but it's not our context, right? I mean, we don't shape God's, I mean, those of us who are followers of Christ, we don't do this. There could be other religions that have idols and worship and that sort of thing. But as followers of Christ who know who Jesus is and that we've entered into covenant relationship with God through faith in Christ, we understand that he is our head and we are the body and that we're part of the family of God. We are not seeking to fashion idols to worship or follow. We don't seek after other gods to provide and to protect, to guide and to direct in life. We seek the true living God, right? But we do struggle to fulfill the first two commands because we have substitute gods. We have idols that are very real in our times. They just don't look like the idolatry of that time. We have gods of pleasure and wealth and prominence and self, empire building. All of this sort of thing can be a pursuit that we put ahead of God and therefore we're violating the very first command. I once remember hearing an evaluating question, Christian radio station, Christian programming, and the question went like this. If God took everything from you, like he did Job, would you still worship him? Well, that's worth pondering. Quite frankly, some of you are living that reality. You've lost a spouse. You've lost a child. You've lost a loved one. You've lost your livelihood. You've been given a diagnosis one that maybe seems more like a death sentence. And you know what it's like right now to be living that. And you might be wondering, is God still first in my life? And we all wonder if we were in those situations, would we worship God as Job did? Job's example was exemplary. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I don't know if you've read the book of Job and you know his story, but he lost everything. And that's the statement he makes. Timothy Keller, in his book, Counterfeits God, Counterfeit Gods, here's the, uh, here's the cover of it. Uh, the longer title goes on to explain kind of the nature of the book. Counterfeit Gods, the empty promises of money, sex, and power, and the only hope that matters. So he's addressing kind of idols of our time. And he goes on to define idols of our time like this. Anything more important... Anything more important to you than God? 
anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, and you can read it. But that's a sobering definition. It's sobering if we're honest with ourselves about that very reality in our own lives. Anything more important to you than God. He goes on to say, if we take Christianity out of it, out of the equation, an idol is the one thing that drives your life. Everyone has an idol. Everyone worships something. Idols can be outward facing like money, sex, or drugs, but idols take many other forms. Inner idols are extremely powerful thoughts and feelings that we value. Examples include respect, power, status, control, greed, and comfort. All of these idols operate inside our minds, but ultimately drive our lives. It's important to understand that idols are not just bad things. This typically seen, things typically seen as good can turn into idols. Work, success, family, even religion itself can be an idol. Anything can be an idol. In fact, the good things in life can become most sinister and deepest idols, right? Because they're subtle, they're hard to maybe identify. Everyone is driven by something, everyone has an idol, Timothy Keller. Well, God had chosen the nation of Israel, and he had chosen them, he had displayed his power, and he called them to himself, and he expected them to keep him first in their lives. You know, there's nothing distinct or different than what is true of us, that in Christ, as Paul says in Ephesians, that we are chosen in Christ, and that we are to keep God first in our lives. So maybe we don't fashion idols like Israel was tempted to do, but we do have idols, and idolatry is real. For many years, I've thought about the application to my own life as I've thought about this first command to have no other gods before me and how that applies to my life or how I evaluate my life. And I actually, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't know exactly how that is applied to my life. It's a constant testing of whether or not God is first in my life. So things I've considered is, um, you know, is it dependent upon how much time I spend with God? Maybe in my Bible reading or prayer time or meditation. And do I, do I kind of compare that against what I spend doing other things, right? Like maybe more on my, um, my hobby side of life. Like how much time I spend watching sports or watching movies or playing video games, right? Um, you might compare it to that kind of a thing to try to go, well, what, how do I indicate or what indicates whether I love God more than these other things? Or how much money I give to the Lord. And, I, and I, even that, the way I've termed it, is, is from our human perspective. How much money I give to the Lord as if it's mine in the first place. When we know that from God's perspective, we're stewards of his money while we're here. Or how much time I give to serving others. So the question I'm asking is, how do I, how do I evaluate this priority of God first in my life? And I've often thought of these examples from the Bible that are um, like ultimate examples. Job, as I've already referenced, and Abraham. These are like the greatest tests possible to whether or not God comes first in a person's life. So we've already talked about Job where he lost everything and yet he held on to his faith in God. That's amazing, right? Abraham's story is pretty well known. Um, this is the one where God has asked him to take his son, Isaac, his one and only son, his son of promise. Yes, that son through whom I have said you will become a great nation. Take that son and go to Mount Moriah. And there, on an altar, sacrifice him to me. That's the command that Abraham has given. 
It's incomprehensible. Yet Abraham obeyed God. He trusted God. He took his son there. And God supplied a ram as a substitute sacrifice. And he said this to Abraham. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. We marvel at these examples, and I think we kind of put ourselves in their shoes and we wonder how well we would do and whether or not we would trust God with an extreme test like that. But what about the everyday life type stuff? Do we, how do we evaluate our daily experiences as to whether or not God is first in my life? So I have another biblical example, which I think is just a little more in keeping with the common kinds of human experiences we have in life that could be a testing of God whether he's first in our life. So I want to tell this story uh, for you. Uh, some of you maybe have heard of the story of Naaman. Naaman was a commander in the Armenian king's army and he had leprosy. And uh, his wife had a servant girl who was from Israel and when he realized his leprosy couldn't be cured at all, uh, he comes, or the Israelite girl says, well there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you. His name is Elisha. Um, and so Naaman goes to Elisha and he kind of has this dialogue back and forth with Elisha because Elisha's asked him to go and dip seven times in the Jordan River and he thinks that's foolish, but in the end he goes and he does it and he's healed. So then we pick up the story here in 2 Kings chapter 5 and it says, Then Naaman, after he's healed, Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God, Elisha. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Now, Elisha's servant uh, had been listening to all of this. Gehazi is his name. And he felt his master had been too easy on Naaman, this foreigner. And he thought that he should have taken something from him. So here's how the story plays out. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to you to say, two young men from the company of the prophets has just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give me a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them. And then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in his house. He sent the men away and left them. When Gehazi, sorry, when he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you. Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds and males and female servants, slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. So why do I use this example for breaking the first command of the Ten Commandments? I think the key for us is found right here where Elisha says, is this the time? No, it's not the time to accept 
money or clothes or vineyards or animals or anything. It, it's, it's not about collecting anything because it all belongs to God's glory. And that's what Elisha knew that Gehazi did not. It's not about letting a foreigner off too easy. It's about not touching the glory that belongs to God alone because it was God alone who healed the man. Elisha knew God. Elisha knew God had healed the man. And so he knew not to touch anything. There is only one God. There's only one God that is to be worshipped and honored. And all the glory would go to that God. Gehazi had a different God in mind. And I think it causes us to pause and ask the question, do we? I hope that you catch the connection here between the Ten Commandments and this story. You see, the Ten Commandments are not a checklist to tick off, but it, it's deeper truth to own and understand. It's deeper truth to embrace because it's the heart of God. God is great, and there is no competitor to his greatness. And therefore, he is to be first, and he is to be worshipped, and we are not to touch his glory. That's what we need to own and embrace with the Ten Commandments. It's not just, yep, I got that done. It's going deeper into the heart of God to know what it means to truly follow him. So the question that I have, and the challenge that I want to leave you with, is for you to evaluate your own heart, your own life, and ask yourself, is there something that I treasure more than God? Is he first in your life? And what might your testing be in your own life? This first command that we are given um, is about priorities. And Jesus addressed this in the New Testament in various places. But here's one example in Matthew chapter 6. He says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. That's the law for life. You see, seek first God and he gives you life. And everything else falls into its proper place. God in his rightful place allows everything else to fall into its proper place. When we listen to God and what matters most in life, usually the other stuff falls into its proper place. Usually. How would you evaluate your own life as to whether or not you have any gods before God? Um, we may have common struggles that we all kind of face in life. I've already mentioned some of them, but things like kids and money and careers. These are the kinds of common challenges but there are certain things that are unique to you. Things that only you will know in your heart before God that God is putting his finger on saying, that's it. That's the thing that I'm asking you to turn over to me. Which is why often we come back to God and once again put it back on the altar, offering it to God. I remember at a certain time in life when I had a aha about my children, our children. Uh, we had four of them, and our one son, when he was very young, two years old, fell off a bridge, 22 feet, landed on the side of a river on the shore. Uh, he lived. Uh, he was fine. But up until that moment, I think I had been holding on, thinking that I could control my child's life, to protect and to provide and all those kinds of things, as if I could control every circumstance. And in that moment, it was very evident I could not, nor could we, any of us. Afterwards, in a communion service, as I was reflecting on the event, it came to me. It was like the voice of God saying to me, Rod, your children. Rod, they're mine. Rod, they're mine first, and I've entrusted them to you. 
I've entrusted you as a parent to raise them, Rod, but I'm their God. You're not. It was something along those lines. And I had to lay down my children on the altar to God more than one time. And so these are the common challenges that we face in life. And I think that our intentions are, are good. We, we desire to walk closely with God. We want to be obedient. We want to keep his commands. We want to have them first in our life. We want to be good at this. But we slip. We fail. We get distracted. There's things of this world that cause us to look away. Things of this world that cause us to doubt. Things of this world that cause us to wander. And even sometimes to the point where he's no longer rightly on the throne of our lives. You know, there's a hymn that we sing called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And the lyrics in one of the verses is so honest to describe our human experience as we long to walk with God, the one we love. It says that we are prone to wander. Prone to wander. Oh, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Why? Why would I be prone to leave the God I love? I don't desire that. But in my human experience, that's what, that's what happens. Here's my heart, God. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You know, Lord, preserve me. Preserve me by your heavenly power and your divine nature to keep me faithfully walking with you to the very end. That I will have no other gods before me. I will worship you and you alone. So my prayer is that, that that is your heart's desire. And we live in the grace of God that he takes us through this life seeking to desire him first. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you are the great God and King of everything. And like Israel, we acknowledge that you are the most powerful and you are the faithful God who has saved us from our sins. That you are our Savior and you are our Lord. And yet as we walk through this world, there's so many things that cause us to wander from you. And I would pray today for the one who feels like they've wandered and they maybe feel like it's hopeless. I pray that you give them hope today. I pray that they would know that it's only one step back through repentance to trust in you. To again say, yeah, you're my Lord and I want to walk with you, God. Empower us by your spirit. Seal our hearts for your courts above. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you and have a fantastic week and join us again here online next Sunday. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.